hear me anyway. Uh, good to have people online as well, and hope I'm coming through loud and clear for you. Uh, if you have a prayer card at this time, we'll, uh, we'll collect them. Um, but uh, this will be an opportunity as we uh, continue the service. But, uh, get in early. And uh, just a, a point of clarification about these, these diapers. Uh, it pays to pay attention to details, right? Uh, so I was under the impression I'd seen the number 200 up on the screen at some point. I'm like, oh, we want to serve 200 families. And Joanne, I think, had a heart attack, you know, thinking I'm going to get that many phone calls. And so the goal very closely and paid attention to, you know, how English works um, is that it said 200 packets of diapers for 50 families. Um, anyway, praise God that uh, we got up to, what's our number? 68. 68 at the moment. So uh, we've gone past the, the 50 families. We're up to 68 that have uh, registered. And uh, so um, thank you to everybody that's uh, brought in the, the diapers. If you still have some to drop off, of course, you can do that. Um, and uh, we'll be uh, sorting those this week and uh, getting all the final details organized. We actually had somebody come to the church yesterday at about 12.05 looking for, uh, for diapers. And we're like, nope, just come back next week. So uh, uh, they're uh, definitely, definitely meeting a, a need. So uh, I think it's a great opportunity. So we, today we're concluding our sermon series, um, Disappointing Jesus, and we started this back at Easter, um, as we looked at the death of, of Jesus and how disappointed people were at that. Um, and, and then we, we saw how Jesus responded to that, of course, with the resurrection. And uh, that the disappointment was misplaced uh, because we didn't have the, the whole story. And so one of the, one of the things that we go through this series is about evaluating ourselves. What are our expectations? What are our expectations? Whether it be for ourselves, whether it be for the church, or whether it be for, for Jesus and what we expect him to, to do. And so how do we as followers of Jesus manage our expectations? I think, I think that's really the, the theme, you know, despite the attention-catching name. It's how do we manage our expectations in a, a godly way? So before we get into it today, I want, to, want you just to imagine a little bit. I want you to imagine that you are the owner of a huge tech company, okay? Maybe one of these companies, okay? So uh, whether it be Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, your tech company. And then how would you define success? How would you define your success in that role 
as the owner of that tech company. Um, are you successful just because you're the owner? Right? Or, or every year, do you measure your success? Has the year been successful? How are we going to decide that? Or, or did we just get successful 20 years ago and we just bathed in our success from that point on? How do we think about success? Um, maybe a few ideas. What about the share price? You know, is that going to be our indicator of success? If the share price goes up every year, then I'm being successful as the owner of this company. Uh, maybe it's the number of users. How many computers are using, or phones or whatever, are using my product? Is that my uh, measure of success? Maybe it's the new products that are produced. You know, am, I, I, am I expanding and broadening the number of products that I'm able to sell to consumers? Uh, or perhaps it's just, tell me the bottom line. How much money did we make this year? How do we measure this success? If the company's succeeding, does that mean I'm succeeding? Or would you look for something a little more personal? Maybe it's my personal wealth. Okay? So if my company is going well, but it's going terribly, and I just broke even this year, and my wealth didn't increase the way that I hoped it would, then that year was a failure, or it wasn't successful. How would I, is that a measure? Or what about Am I able to give more to charity this year than I was last year? What, does that make it more successful for me? Or happiness. Am I happier now than I was last year, five years or ten years ago? Or what about the health of my close relationships? Is that the measure of success that I use? And, and so we, we have a, a lot of different measures there, don't we? And, and so when I say to you, oh, is your son, is your daughter, is your uncle, are they, have they been successful in life? Where do your thoughts go? The top half of this screen or the bottom half of this screen? I think we're taught, aren't we, from a very early age, that it's the top half of the screen that determines whether or not you're successful. What do we say to the kids that want to, you know, go to college and major in pottery? Yeah? Do we say, oh, that's great, you're going to be so happy? Or do we say, how are you going to make a living? How are you going to be successful? You see, we teach kids to make decisions based on the top half of the screen. Because that's generally how we define success. But uh, perhaps for our own lives, we want to apply a different metric, right? Oh, I didn't reach the top. I didn't reach the place that I hoped I would. I, I worked in this position at this level. So I'm going to settle for a different measure of success. I'm going to measure for happiness, you know, settle for happiness. Yeah, I couldn't be rich, and so I settled for happiness. Um, 
because perhaps we, we think, oh yeah, really successful people are both rich and happy. But if I can't have one, I'll have the other. How about a church? What does it mean for a church to be successful? How do we measure success as a church? How do, how do you imagine the year and go, what was the year like? Was it a good year? How did we do? Perhaps you go through that process and say, how did the elders and the deacons and the minister do? Right? Was it a successful year? What do we, what do we look for? Oops. Uh, there's some things that didn't make it on there, I don't think. So, um, you know, are we looking for one of the things that we, we count the most are, are attendance. Is our attendance up? Is our things that are easy to count tend to be the most common measures of success? So we might count attendance, we might count members, we might count baptisms, we might count... Um, Money, you know, is our offering up? Are we meeting budget? Are we over budget? Um, we might count expenses, right? Is that a good or a bad thing if we're spending more money? Um, and, and so is that our measure of success? Uh, what about people in growth groups or involved in, in other ministries or other studies? Is that a better measure of success. Should we consider the different ways that the church is involved in the community? The church is more Is that a measure of success? Um, is there a way to measure the spiritual growth of the people who attend here? Right. Is that, if there is a way, is that a, a, the appropriate way of, of measuring it. How do we decide? Has this year been a successful year for the church? Because success isn't always easy to measure. Success for Jesus meant dying on the cross. A success story that no one at the time Measured. That's why, right? Because his success was everyone else's failure. They looked at him and said, "That's not success." Yeah. If you're the Messiah, that would be success. Instead, Jesus went all the way through the experience on the cross to death. But perhaps no story or series of, of events better demonstrates the uniqueness of Jesus' success measure um, as clearly as the story we find in Matthew 19. It's the same as what we saw in, Matthew, in Mark 10 in our reading. But in Matthew, I'm going to be in Matthew 19 this morning. We read earlier... Uh, Mark, Matthew retells the story of, of Mark, and it's also in Luke. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tell the, the same story about this man who approaches Jesus. And we're not given a great deal of information 
about him. In, in Matthew 19 and verse 16, we're told, just then a man came up to Jesus and said, okay, that's it, a man. And, and so as we put the different gospel accounts together, uh, we're able to He went away because he had great wealth. So he's rich, he's young, he's a man, the rich young man. Um, but if we were to turn over to Luke 18, 18, and you don't need to do that, but if you did, you would see that he is there described as a ruler. Okay. And so that's where we get the title, rich, young, ruler. Okay. The rich, young ruler by most people's measures, by all appearances, was successful. Even in the little bit that we know about him, uh, he was rich, he was a ruler, and according to his word that Jesus didn't challenge, uh, he'd kept the law completely. Okay. He was financially successful. He was politically successful. He was morally successful. And yet he comes to Jesus and he asks a question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? For all in his life, for all success that he had had, he still had this question. He had no confidence that he hadn't overlooked something, hadn't missed something, and in so doing, his eternal life was in jeopardy. And I wonder what he expected Jesus to say. Particularly when he said, oh, did he expect Jesus to give him a high five? There was certainly uh, a, a cultural value that, that perhaps it's, uh, we share that someone who was wealthy had been blessed. Right? So, and if you'd been blessed, then you must be doing something good. Remember the, the story of the man who was not only blind, but also begging, and the disciples say to, to Jesus, Jesus, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? You see there was this uh, a so correlation with association between sin and wrongdoing and poverty and blindness. So, if you swing that pendulum to the other side, if you see somebody who's wealthy and doing well, is there a correlation that says, well, they must be, God is really looking after them. Why would God look after them? Now, there was certainly, they, they recognized, you can go to Proverbs, you can look at the kings of Israel and Judah, you know, it's, they weren't stupid, they recognized that there were evil people that became wealthy because of their evil doing. But on the other hand, 
God tells them to do. That God is pleased with them. And so this rich young is would be the opinion of those around him. And if you're familiar with the story though, you know that Jesus challenges him about his finances. And the young man decided that the cost of giving away his riches in order to follow Jesus was too great. Matthew 19.22 tells us that the young man went away sad. He was disappointed. Things didn't go the way. didn't occur to him that Jesus might require that. And so when Jesus says that, he goes away disappointed. He goes away sad. He hadn't received the answer that he was hoping for. And so in a sense, Jesus disappointed him. But only because the young man's expectations were disappointed. Because he wouldn't accept Jesus' invitation, he was disappointed. And we might blame Jesus for, he might, sorry, blame Jesus for asking too much of him. Can you imagine him going back to his friends afterwards and saying, look, I'm unreasonable. Yeah. He, he, he was off his rocker. He said, I have to give away everything. Yeah, and I, right? That's just crazy. Right? God's blessed me. Why would I then give it all away? You can imagine that conversation as he blames Jesus for, what, for the requirement that Jesus made. But it was his own choices and his own priorities that it really left him disappointed. That's not really where I want to spend all my time today, though. In verse 27, the Apostle Peter picks up this conversation. I don't know, Peter... And so, he said... That sounds, you know, that's a statement of fact, perhaps. But then look at that next question. What then will there be? <laughs> Peter's a Is that really? Yeah. If you say, have you really given up a fishing boat? That becomes a, some sort of an investment, doesn't it? <laughs> right? I'll burn my fishing boat because I'm getting a yacht. Not just any yacht, I'm talking like oligarch, mega yacht. 
without a sailor. But, you know, we still call it a yacht. Um, and, and so that seems to be what Peter's saying. Jesus, how are you going to reward? And um, Jesus uh, explains a few different things. Again, I'm not going to get into, but he comes to this conclusion. He says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now, most churches that uh, I've been around, uh, I will hear this applied to the majority of um, church fellowship meals, right? I know we're kind and we let the guests go first, but there's all... was talking about. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the case. But I think what we see is that in an earthly way. What will we get out of this, Jesus? And, and, and the sort of things that they're thinking, and they're saying, Jesus, we've left everything. Will we be rich? Will we be famous? Will people like us? Will we have power? What's it going to... What are we getting, Jesus? Because we're not like that rich man. Do you, do you see that? That sense of self-righteousness there? We're not like to him. We're more... Will there be for us? Yeah. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. And I think sometimes when we see this verse and this passage, we connect this verse to the rich young ruler. And we go, oh, he, he, he's got all but he's going to be last right he's first now in this life he's going to be last in life to come and, and we tell the message that Jesus is saying with this, that that they next, but I want this statement is made to the apostles. And so, what is Jesus saying to them, and maybe to us? I don't know for sure who the apostles thought they were in this first and last statement. But Jesus goes on to tell a story in chapter 20. 
and it's a, a parable. It's a parable. And uh, a man owns a, a vineyard. It's harvest time, and he needs workers. And so he, he goes to the square in the town. Uh, that's where they didn't have Home Depot back then. And so this is where the workers would gather. And uh, they'd gather there in the square. And, uh, you know, say, I need six. Jump in my truck and we'll head off, you know, and I'll, I'll pay you. And so we see that in the story. The landowner comes in and to hire the workers. And he says that he's going to pay them. Here it's a denarius for a day and sent them into his vineyard. He does this 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock. And he must have a lot of grapes because he comes back at 5 o'clock and gets some more. And so each group a different number of hours. Okay. And then at the end of the day, it's interesting in, in Matthew, it says that um, verse 8 of chapter 20, when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call and pay them their wages. And then he specified, one hired and going on to the first. And, and so the ones who are hired receive. They see their pay. And they think, oh, that's good pay for an hour. We're going to be rolling. Okay. But this is what happens. It's the same rate of pay for each group of workers, regardless of when they started. And again, they weren't stupid. They knew what an hourly rate was. They could do math, just as we can. And so they, they get upset that those who've come at the end are receiving the same thing as those at the beginning. I think we can all understand that, right? The difference was, perhaps, that they had all signed a contract or accepted the agreement of what they would receive for that day. Because whenever the owner went into the landowner goes in and pick up people, he says, I'll give you a denarius, a day's pay. And he said that to the first group. He says to the second and others, I'll give you what's right, I'll pay you fairly. And so everybody gets what they agreed to work for. But then they start looking around. And they say what most three and four-year-olds say. That's not fair. <laughs> right? That's not fair. Okay. I don't like the way this is being distributed. And so Jesus, though, is remember who he's telling this story to. He's telling it to the apostles. And notice the way he says, So the last will be first, and the first 
will be lost. It, it connects this story directly to the events with the rich young ruler and with the statement that the apostles made about we've given up everything to come and follow you. What do you have for us? So that, that is very much the context of what's going on here. This story to the twelve in the, is laid out here in Matthew to teach them what it means about being first and last. So when we look at this, I wonder who the apostles are. You see, the apostles are feeling as they but he's going to be made last. And they're like, oh, we've given up everything. We are last. And now you're going to make us first. What are we going to get? And so Jesus, I believe, is flipping that around. And he's saying, actually, you apostles, you're not last. You're the You're getting what you signed up for. You're getting what you agreed. But listen, you're first. I want you to think about what that means. That means that you will be last. And so in what ways are the apostles last? Remember, they're followers of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate first, isn't he? And then he makes himself last on the cross. The apostles are first, but they're going to be made last in their experience. It's interesting in the um, In Mark's account, when Jesus answers Peter's question, he says, hey, look, you're going to receive more family. You're going to receive more blessings. Uh, he says, look, th there is, and, and I believe by that he's referring to the kingdom of God and the, the people there, Mark 10 and in verse 30. He says, you won't fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Right? You know yeah, this is what we're looking for, Jesus. Along with persecutions. Right? Along with persecutions. So your family will end because you're part of the family of God. You see, your measure is Jesus' measure of success. And ultimately, we believe that all uh, 11 of the apostles uh, died for their faith. What Jesus is describing in this parable to the apostles and to us is what does grace look like? Because the first word with what they were given. But the thing is that they thought that they 
deserve. And, and if we were thinking about this just as a uh, story about employment, they would be correct, right? They, they agreed to work for a particular you know, length of time for a particular amount of money. And, and so they were correct. This was an employment agreement. But Jesus isn't talking about an employment agreement, is he? He's teaching us a deeper lesson. And so in, in this deeper lesson, they are receiving this much money because that is what the landowner has agreed to give them. So, so then the second group is the same. They thought that... are upset at the people who only worked one hour. You see, the people who Now, the 12 hours... And, and so, it's a story of grace. They saw the fifth group of and now the landowner has just gone too far. Despite what each of them received, here's the kicker, they're disappointed in the landowner, we would say in God, because of what he's given others. You see, rather to others. And so my disappointment really of how other people should be treated. And so what Jesus tells me is that God doesn't have a scorebook of how much we give up for him. <laughs> okay? God doesn't We give up for him. Because that's the game that Peter and the apostles were playing, right? Hey, look how much we've given up for you, Jesus. We left our boats. We left our families. Uh, we, we don't have anywhere to lay our heads because we're following you. Matthew says, I gave up my good income, you know, from the Romans and comfortable lifestyle to come and follow you. Look what we've given up. But God counts what we give up for him. God prior to following Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, For his death. Rather, the same forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, and acceptance. Whether we're at the top 
or whether the same. And that is we Great. His complete mercy, his complete love. We all And yet, sometimes perhaps we look around and we say, well, that person doesn't really deserve it as much as I do. And so Mark 10 tells us there that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him. Yes, Jesus was disappointed when that young man left. There was much about him that was admirable. Jesus was hoping, Jesus was hoping that he would come and follow him. Likewise, the land in the parable received his grace. Instead of gratitude, they get caught up in competition and in envy. He says at the end of the, in verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Right? There's that disappointment that I'm generous. Feedback I'm receiving is, is that you're mad with me because I'm being generous. You're envious of what others are getting. And so hopefully, Jesus, we've seen that can get out of whack, and that we can be disappointed in him. We may not think of it that way, but I believe it happens that Jesus doesn't act in the way that we think he should. It's in these moments that we need to take some extra time to consider our priorities. Because more often than not, it's in these moments that we're actually disappointing Jesus. And so who are we in this parable? The first or the last? There's an interesting comment in verse 7. The landowner asks those standing around at five o'clock, late in the day. He says, why haven't you been working? And they were thinking, has hired us. I think there are some other ways we could use to describe that. This is the group of people that no one wanted. This is the group of people that have picked last football game. The group of people overlooked for jobs four times. The group of people, perhaps, who didn't deserve good things. The group of people who didn't look as though they could work hard. The group of people who, for whatever reason, were left on the sidelines. Maybe they were foreigners. Maybe they had the wrong skin color. 
Maybe they weren't educated. Maybe they were strangers, just from another town, didn't have the right family connections. Whatever it was, nobody hired them. And they were left sitting there all day. I think one of the ways we need to challenge ourselves is to ask, what if, what if we're the first group of workers? What if those of us who've been in the church the longest are the first group of workers? Who are the last group of workers? Who, who are the workers, perhaps, that are still in the town square? Who are the workers who nobody wants? And what does God have to say to them? How can we show these people in our lives, in our church, in our community, how can we show them the grace that the landowner demonstrates in this story? I think this is an, an unusual story because I, I suspect that oftentimes when we read it, we want to and, and there may be a reading where you can say, oh, Israel is the first group and we're the Christians, we're the last group, you know, 2,000 years later, and, and God has shown us so much grace and this is all about the Jews, you know, the, the Jewish people rejecting Jesus and whatever. I don't think that's it. It may be. But, but I think that oftentimes if we were to read it and make it personal, we'd say, oh, we're that last group. Because we're so humble. And we recognize how much grace we needed. And we're just so thankful that God is the kind landowner who gives us that much grace. But I wonder if maybe we're not that first group. And if the challenge isn't for us, to show grace to other people, to show grace, grace to those who haven't yet been chosen. How do we measure success? One of the ways Jesus measures success is just, do we show grace? Do we show grace? Do we live lives of grace towards other people? I don't think it's any coincidence that the very next paragraph in Matthew chapter 20. We have the rich young ruler. We have Peter saying, what are we going to get out of this? We have the first will be last. We have the third time. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. You see, Jesus said, this is what it looks like for the first to become last. And that's where we started our series, isn't it? We've sort of gone full circle to think, how does Jesus challenge our perception of how we see the world? How does Jesus, um, how does Jesus disappoint us? How does he want us to change our expectations, to adjust our priorities? The first will be last. Sometimes we're the first. 
We need to make sure that we're showing grace to those around us. Because Jesus has shown grace to us. When we forget that our 12 hours, that whatever we've given up, that whatever we've done, whatever sins we haven't done, what, everything, that, that we still didn't need grace, or we didn't need as much grace as that person, when, when, when we think that somehow we've, we've achieved something, that we've been in the church this long, we've been faithful this long, we've taught Bible. Our contract there on the top line represents grace. Then our attitude towards those who come along later is probably going to be missing grace. Thank God for his grace. Amen.